0: to pass when Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its kings, so that he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai. And all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Horham, king of Ebron, Baram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lakesh, and Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel." Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the kings of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, encamped before Gibeon to make war with it. Now, this is interesting because Adonai Zadok is king of Jerusalem. And that's actually a Jewish name that he has. Remember earlier on in Genesis chapter four, 14, where... Um, Melchizedek Melech, which is king Zedek, which is righteousness And you know the word Adonai in the Hebrew, right? Adonai is the word Lord So here, this pagan king that's against the Lord Has a Hebrew name Which means Adonai, Lord Zedek meaning righteousness Melchizedek in Genesis 14 means king of righteousness And he came Remember that theophany of Christ he came as the king of righteousness of the king of Salem, which was an ancient name for Jerusalem. So there's some room for some interesting speculation here. And uh, I'm not going to do it, but I, I will say this, that Satan is always masquerading. And here he is coming with a Hebrew name of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, Satan knows one day the true and living king, Jesus Christ, will rule from Jerusalem. In the millennial period, he will rule and reign there for a thousand years. Now, if you know much about history, you know that kings have fought and fought and fought and fought over Jerusalem. The Muslims took it over, the quote-unquote Christians... (laughs) I don't think they were very Christian, but they were waving a Christian banner, and I think that was as much demonic as the Muslims that were taking over Jerusalem. But they fought for that piece of land. Interesting today. You've got hundreds of countries, far bigger, far more populous, far more economically wealthy, far more prestigious in a zillion different ways than Israel. But yet you don't hear about anything about those countries. A lot of those countries, people don't even know they exist. But yet Israel is constantly in the the news. Everybody knows about Israel. Everybody knows about the Jews. The Bible makes it clear that Jerusalem is the center of the earth that all revolves around that one little piece of ground over there in the Middle East around Israel and here Satan I believe possessing this guy this king and calling himself the Lord of righteousness is just a blasphemous statement against the true and reigning king of righteousness that will one day rule there and so he's getting together all these pagan kings the four great powers besides himself to go up against Gibeon now Gibeon he's assuming that possibly they're joining forces with Joshua and they know that these guys were mighty men of valor and so they wanted to try to split Joshua's forces now if you can look at it later on your map you'll be able to see what Joshua did is he goes in and he splits the country right in half as any great general would do And he splits it, and then he fights with the North, and then he'll fight with the South. And he's trying to split the country up so they can't communicate between one another. They can't encourage or help one another with supplies or any other way. Um, Napoleon did the same thing. When he went and conquered the world, he split up the countries he would go into. go in half, and then he would fight against the North and fight against the South, weakening it. And this is something you find generals through history constantly did. And they got it all from this first battle, Joshua's battle. They got their inspiration from here because it works. And so these kings, realizing what Joshua was doing, is come in and he's saying, hey, let's pull together. Let's not let him do what he's wanting to do. And that split the country up. Let's get together and combine forces against. Let's first go take it out on Gibeon for what they've done by joining forces with Joshua. And then we'll fight against uh, Joshua as well. And so in verse six, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor, and the Lord said to Joshua, "Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand; not a man of them shall stand before you." So here he's getting a clear direction from God to go again to go into battle, and that God would cause them to win, as we were here this morning in chapter nine, he didn 't get direction from the Lord, and what a horrible scene it was. And now he's saying, go. This is a battle that I want you to fight. I'll be with you. And in verse 9, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Folks, that's a 25-mile walk at night, going 4,000 feet higher in elevation. So imagine a 25-mile walk uphill all night. That's what they did. These guys, they were not wimps, I'll tell you. And they didn't have, a, they didn't have your uh, Nike tennis shoe to help them out either. They were in sandals. These guys were just tough dudes. And so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with the great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Mekdath. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horn that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the children of Israel killed with the sword. So God jumps into the battle, joins them, partners with them to cause the enemy to lose. And I love this. The Lord. Our God is a man of war. David cries out and he says, Lord, train my hands for war. And here the Lord jumps in and helps them in battle that the enemy does not get away. Now, notice how it works, the way it always works. We do what God has put before us to do, and the Lord will join us to have the victory. We often will lay back and say, God, do it, God, do it, God, do it. And God is saying, do what I've told you to do, and I will do what I'm going to do. Together, the two in partnership will bring the victory. But we often have to put our hand to the plow. We often have to be diligent in the work that God has told us to do. Paul says, I labor more than all, but not I. But it's the grace of God. And so God has given you a work to do. Are you doing it? Well, gee, I need victory in these areas of my life. Do what the Lord has shown you to do. Go back to the scriptures. Do what God has showed you to do. And those other areas of your life, God will supernaturally cause them to be uprooted. God will work them out. Now, we can often say, well, that guy brought victory, or that guy had success by doing this, or doing that. And you can try to do that, but it won't work. The reason it worked is because they were doing what the Lord showed them to do, and God gave them the increase. And so we simply know that the, that the Lord's told us all to meditate in his word day and night. The Lord's told us all to pray without ceasing. The Lord's told us all not to forsake together the brethren. And then in this particular area, God's told you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. God's told you to respect your husband. He's told you to teach your kids the word of God. So whatever area it is, go and do what God showed you to do. Man, I'm having a hard time at work. Are you working for your employer as unto the Lord? Well, that won't solve all my problems. Just do it. Do what the word of God plainly says. Go work firm as unto the Lord and watch the Lord give you favor at work. God will bring down those hellstones and uh, devour the enemy before you. It's interesting how God has made all the creatures on this earth to work. Did you know that for a bee to make one pound of honey, it would have had to covered over 356,000 heads of clover. That means it would have had to have visited that clover, those 356,000 heads of clover, 3,360,000 visits. That would be the equivalent of him flying three times around the earth. It took me a long time to figure this out. It took me all day Saturday. But uh, no, only kidding But anyway, you can imagine how we say, you know, busy as a bee. Those bees are busy. Get out of their way. Uh, They are busy. Well, it's pretty amazing how they marched all night long. They got there. They fought all day long. But for Joshua, that wasn't enough. Look at verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ai-Jalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the people revenged upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. You imagine these guys. They've marched all that night long, 25 miles uphill. They get there at the day break. They fight all day long. It's finally getting night. All right, we're going to get a rest. And then Joshua says, hey, son, stay out longer. <laughs> so for another 24 hours, they're fighting. My goodness. Uh, faith sometimes can wear you out, I guess. I don't know. But there that sun stood still in its place. Now, some might say, wow, that's not a very scientific statement. The sun stood still. Well, you've got to remember, the Bible's a pre-scientific book. But in no way is it against science or in, in error with science. Well, we know that the sun doesn't stand still. We know that it's not really going back and forth or going around like we suppose it. the earth is in orbit around the sun. Well, but don't we say On the news and in the newspaper, the sun rises and the sun sets. We know that's not scientific. We know the sun really doesn't rise and the sun really doesn't set. But from a human perspective, it does do that. It's not scientific, but it does indeed do that to uh, the naked eye. And so, again, this is the same type of statement. Interesting that. Almost all civilizations around the world that had any kind of documentation during this time, all of them mention either the long day or the long night. Here the Aztec Indians in our area, they have historical reports during this time and they report a long night. Interesting, there's some civilizations talk about a long dusk or a long early morning uh, in China, they mention, again, uh, the long night uh, in their records. And so, again, you say, wow, that's just hard to believe. Well, <laughs> if God made the sun and the moon and he made the heavens, I mean, it's really no big deal for him to stop him for a day. But if you have a hard time with, in the beginning, God created, well, you'll have a hard time with this too and with a lot of other miracles that happened in the Bible. But notice there in verse 14, And there has been no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Notice here, the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Jesus taught on the same principle. Turn over, if you would, to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 jesus there had cursed the fig tree one gospel points out that it immediately died but here peter and some of the apostles didn't notice it until the next day and they were amazed because they could tell that it had been destroyed from roots upward and peter remembering said rabbi look the fig tree which you cursed is withered away and in verse 22 of mark chapter 11 verse 22 God definitely gives heed to the voice of a man if it's spoken in faith, and Joshua clearly had faith. Faith isn't, I know God can do it. That's not faith. Faith is, I believe God is doing it. There's that unleashing of faith where it's just, it's a done deal. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We also know that prayer builds up the most holy faith, it tells us in Jude. And so there are ways of building your faith up through the word, through prayer, strengthening your faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:6 that we must believe that God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So those who truly have faith do seek the face of God. And God hears the man and does the very thing that we ask. It says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. And we have the very thing that we ask of him. So God gives heed to your voice. God hears every word you speak, how much more in prayer. And here we see this wonderful example. God did it once, he won't do it again. But uh, we see that there he even stopped the entire process of the solar system. Well, in verse 16, these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave of Mictelah. And it was told Joshua saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Mictelah. And Joshua said, roll a large stone against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear ranks. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So don't get distracted with these five royal guys. Shut them up in the cave and get after the men. Don't stop the battle. Don't get all distracted. You know how you could do that. You know the big catch. We got the kings, you know, and all these thousands of guys going, we got the kings. Oh, you know, and and Joshua's forget about those dudes. Go after the multitudes. Let's go. Come on. Let's get back in the battle. You're getting distracted here. Let's move forward. And then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a great, very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Magdala in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. In other words, all the people were in awe at the children of Israel. No one said anything bad about them because they had just plumb out whipped them and there's nothing they could say. So in this great battle with the five kings, there in the area of Gibbon, and Gibeon there, he uprooted the soldiers. The soldiers were there, and there was a mass slaughter of the majority of them. But these men of these kingdoms went back to their cities, and after this, Joshua go back and destroy city after city after city after city and wipe everybody out. Uh, But for the most part, they got the majority of the soldiers. So now it would be a pretty easy battle uh, afterwards for the southern part of the kingdom. Remember, he split the country in two. This is the southern area. And so he took out the southern area. And now he's going to go and he's going to attack all the cities individually. Then he's going to come back and he's going to fight against the northern. Uh, They do the same thing. They group together. That's their best chance. He's going to whip them. And then he's going to go and take out each of the cities one by one. At least that's what he was supposed to have done. Now, in verse 21, all the people returned to the camp. So Joshua, at Megiddo, in peace, and no one moved their tongue against them. We just read that. Verse 22. Then Joshua said, "Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings to be from the cave." And so you might say he opened up the mouth of the cave, and there was five cavities in the in the mouth. Of, no, it wouldn't. You wouldn't say that. <clears throat> five crowns. I don't know, you wouldn't say that either. Anyway, and so they did so. And they brought out those five kings to him from the cave, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out these five kings to Joshua that uh, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war, if you have five kings is that a royal flush I don't know I don't know anyway horrible I know and he went and he came near and he said put your feet on the necks of these kings so these guys are all humbled and you know have mercy on me and these guys come and they stick their foot right on their necks of these kings and Joshua said to him do not be afraid nor be dismayed Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. Again, the law said that you are to take them down uh, at evening time, that you don't pollute the land. Or Moses had given that command. And it was at the time of going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones against the cave's mouth which remained until this very day now on that day Joshua took uh, Mechadah and struck it and its kings with the edge of the sword he utterly destroyed them all the people who were in it he let none remain he also did to the king of Mechadah as he had done to the king of Jericho then Joshua passed from Mecca and all Israel with him to Gibna and they fought against Gibna and the Lord also delivered it into the king's hand and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword he let none remain in it but did to its kings as he had done to the kings of Jericho and then Joshua passed Nidnah, and he went down to Lachish and he did the same thing and in verse 4:34, he went to Eglon and he did the same thing And there in verse 40, So Joshua conquered all the land and the mountain country of the south and the lowlands and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. And all these kings and all their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal now some people have a problem here with this they went in and they destroyed everybody man women child baby in the Psalms talking about this David has a Psalm that says and blessed is the man who cast the babies against the rocks dashes them against the rocks now that sounds pretty brutal I agree now some simply will just say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament, things like that happened. But in reality, remember taking in the promised land is a type of us walking in the fullness of the Christian life that God has given for us. And in the land that we're going into possess is all kinds of fleshly enemies. And we have to take out the enemies of lust and of covetousness, of lying, of deceit, of cheating, all of the enemies that are in the land, the works of the flesh, must utterly be destroyed. We can't make a treaty with them. We can't compromise. We have to utterly annihilate them. That's the typology of it. Now what happened really, remember, that God had made it clear. Remember back in Deuteronomy, turn over there if you would, to chapter 9. Moses had given them instruction. In Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verse 1, Hear, o Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go into... Dispossess the nations greater and mighty than yourself, cities greater and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall, and the descendants of Anakim, the giants, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you will drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. But it is because, listen now, in verse 4, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember what he had told Abraham. Turn over to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. He told Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. But there in verse chapter 15, verse 16, he said to Abram, and this is in a, a dream, he's having a nightmare, and the Lord says your descendants will be strangers in another land that is not theirs, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years, referring to Egypt. Also the nations whom they serve I will judge afterwards. They shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried as a good old man. Now listen to this, And in verse 16, but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, God had given them 400 years to repent, but the people that were living in the promised land, generically called the Amorites, they were broken down in various kingdoms eventually, But at that time it was the Amorites and then they spread out into various kingdoms were living in the promised land. And God gave them 400 years to change. 400 years to repent. And in that 400 years they only grew more and more corrupt. Now he talks about it in the book of Leviticus. How they were into incredible sins that the Israelites were never to get involved in. They were into homosexuality and into sodomy and into bestiality. Now, we know how homosexuality has brought AIDS. And anybody who doesn't want to believe that is like an ostrich burying their head in the sand. It's obvious that where there is a great population of homosexuals, there is also a great population of people with AIDS where there is hardly any homosexuality there is almost no AIDS. AIDS is what Roman says that in their body they would receive the penalty of their error. AIDS came about because of a wicked relationship man with man and woman with women. Now if you imagine AIDS and how destructive that disease is and how it can, can destroy an entire country As it's almost doing now in Africa, there's almost going to be a ghost continent because of AIDS and the epidemic spreading as well as in Hades and other places where it's it's very possibly in another decade or two is going to completely destroy the entire country where almost everybody has AIDS. Well, imagine what would happen to a population that was doing this for 400 years as well as bestiality imagine the six sick diseases the animals must have had as well as the people. I'll tell you, it's far greater than AIDS. And you think it won't happen. It's right around the corner for us, folks. Our country has slid as far as you can slide downwards. We're at the bottom. And down in this pit, a lot of other wickedness is going to expound. We have all the rape and the murder and the incest and the child molestation and all the weird things, bestiality is going to be a part of it and you're going to hear about it if you haven't already heard about it and you're going to see far more of it. And more diseases, more weird, more vile than age is going to plague the, the world, but especially the countries that allow such things to happen. And so these countries were polluted. The babies were polluted. The women were polluted. Much of the animals were polluted. And so it would be like a ravenous dog with rabies and its mouth is foaming and there's the kids at play. And you go and you go, oh, but it's such a cute little dog. It's growling and it's foaming at the mouth, but you know, you know, I just hate to kill it. But there it's crouched down ready to leap towards the children. Of course you're going to kill it. And somebody hears about you killing a dog. You killed a dog? How horrible of you. Well, it had rabies, and it was going to bite and give rabies to the kids, and, and they would die as well. So did I kill a dog, or did I protect the children? Did God destroy these nations, or did he protect his nation? God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, we learn in the book of Ezekiel. God was not rejoicing in the destruction of wicked of these cultures and societies, but he had to protect his kids who were gonna depossess the land. And so, in God's way of looking at it, he killed a dog with rabies. And although they were human lives, and some of them innocent human lives that I believe will be in heaven, uh, these little children that were below the age of accountability, you say, where do you get that? Well, in the book of Jonah. When Jonah came and preached, and there the people repented, and Jonah was mad that, they didn't, that God didn't go ahead and destroy the Ninevites, there, the Assyrians there in Nineveh, he said, but is it right that I destroy all these innocent animals and the innocent children who don't know their right hand from their left? And so often, children are plagued and even die because of the foolishness of their parents. We've heard stories where the mom and dad are drunk after a party and there the kids are in the back seat driving home. We have a brother in our church here who's had some very dear family members who were in the middle of a drug deal and they had their kids with them. And these little kids saw their parents get blown away. So, Bad things do happen to kids because of their parents. And here, unfortunately, there were innocent lives that had to be taken because they were polluted by their parents. And uh, again, I'll make note of that. It is the Old Testament. (laughs) And it's not the New Testament. But again, before you judge God too harshly, take a look at all the facts. Well, there in chapter 11, then we see the northern conquest. That would be in the area up towards Galilee. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, the king of uh, Akashvah, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains of the plain, south of Chinaroth, in the lowlands, and in the heights of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanites in the east, and to the west and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jubazites, and the mountains of the Hivites below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude. This is called the hyperbole uh, in literature. In other words, it's an obvious exaggeration. You know, you say, oh man, I was at the parade. How many people were down there? Oh, couldn't find a parking place anywhere. There must have been 10 million people there. No one really believes that you're being literal. 10 million people, downtown Chula Vista, at a parade. You know, I don't think so. Well, I didn't expect you to believe 10 million. The point I'm making is there's just so many people. Uh, you couldn't find a parking place anywhere. And, and this kind of... And so again, he, he's saying there's just so many people, like the sand of the sh- of the sea. And very many horses and chariots. Josephus makes a mention of this battle. The historian... And he says there was 300,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 chariots, and 10,000 horsemen. Man, that must have looked like a sea of people. And it must have smelled like Imperial Beach with all those horses. And when all these kings, they met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. Now the waters of Merim was a little swampy sort of lake area up in the Hula Valley area today. And if you look on the map that I gave you tonight, you can see the on the map on the left, the Lake Hula. Now that is not there today. What happened back after 1948, after World War II and the Jews came in, they began to buy up that whole area of swampland. And there was all kinds of alligators and uh, crocodiles, and there's different water snakes and all kinds of different uh, animals that were indigenous only to this area in Israel. But they needed farmland desperately, and they dried that whole section up. They actually built channels to drain the rest of the water down into the Sea of Galilee. And then the rest of it, they dried up using um, uh, eucalyptus trees. And they also made some other type of citrus trees that pulled the water out of the air. And uh, they actually invented some trees that would dry up this whole Hula Valley area. And it became very, very lush farmland. But at this time, when Joshua was there, there was a uh, type of lake up there, probably more of a swampland than a lake. Um, and we are at verse, oh, yeah, verse 8 now. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to the great, greater Sidon, to the brook of Miseroth and the valley of Mizpah, eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. Oh, there, verse 6, that's where I left off, yeah. Do not be afraid because of them, the Lord gave Joshua the encouragement, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now why did the Lord want them to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire? Because the Lord had made it clear back in Deuteronomy 17 that their strength was not to be in their military force, but their strength was to be in their trust in God. In Psalms 20, David talks about this in verse 7. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And also in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in the horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Later on, when we get over to 2 Samuel chapter 8, it said, and David hung on to some of the horses and chariots. He multiplied them to himself, and then he multiplied wives and gold and silver, and then he fell with Bathsheba. So this was something they were definitely not to do, was to fight the conventional warfare of that day. They were to look for hellstones. They were to look for God to partner with them to win the battle. Well, they went on down and they fought there against the king of Hazor and notice there in the last part of verse 11 he burned Hazor with fire the reason I say I make a note of this is today when we go to Israel and Hazor is also on your map I think it's on the right side looked at so many maps Hazor is on one of these here I believe if not it's in the map in your Bible do you see it on there? Right side, the arrow pointing to it. Yeah, right up there in the middle. The giant arrow on the right going to it. And Hazor today is one of the biggest tells. A tell is a big mound where there's various generations of cities there. And at this particular tell, you can go down to the time, about this time when Joshua fought the battle. And you know what is there? A solid layer of ash. And you can actually walk over and pick up this ash it's still there because another city was built upon it. And it's just a testimony right there. You can hang on to the ash in which Joshua burnt that city with fire. And it's just, it's just mind-boggling. In my hand, you know, you're holding that ash and you're realizing this is a historical, it's a true book. There's not one archeological fact that has ever controverted the Bible. Not one archeological find that has ever controverted the Bible. And there at the time of Joshua, sure enough, you find the ash in which they burned down these very cities. In verse 16, so Joshua took all this land and the mountain country and all the south and all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Holak and the Sint to Seir, even as far as Belgad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Now verse 18, and Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. It was actually about seven years. What do we find in the Bible about our war? Don't weary in well-doing. You will reap if you faint not. What did Paul say? I fought the fight. I kept the faith. Now awaits for me a crown of life. Folks, the day you came to the Lord, you lost the peace of this world, which was really a lying peace that was trying to comfort your heart and mind from the guilt you should have had because you're heading towards hell, you lost that lying peace and you got the peace of God. You lost the circumstantial joy of this world, but you gained the joy of the Lord. But you also can know a man by his enemies, and folks, there's hardly any friends here on this earth for us at all. Almost everything is an enemy to the one who's trying to follow the Lord. Jesus said, the world hated you, they're going to hate me. If they're not afraid to call me this mighty miracle king of the Jews, they're not afraid to call me Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. What are they going to be afraid to call you? Nothing. And they're going to raise up and they're going to kill you thinking they're doing God a service. I say this to you that you won't be stumbled. Folks, we have a fight and that fight's going to be around for a long time. Get used to it have the mind of a soldier and be aware that we're fighting a battle and we're going to have to continue to fight in that battle until the day we die. And this is exactly what we see as we're going to get over to chapter 14 and see Caleb in just a second. And in verse 20 there, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in the battle that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So God helped the children of Israel in their weakness. He knew it would be hard to keep fighting, to keep kicking everybody out of the land. And so the Lord, the word here hardened actually is the word to confirm. In other words, they had already hardened their hearts against God and God just confirmed that hardness. Interesting if you go back to Exodus. It says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. After that, it said, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God, and God said, if that's your decision, I'll confirm that decision. And God used the confirming of his hardening of heart for his own advantage. And here, in the same way, these people were fighting against God's people and against God's plan, and God just confirmed the hardness of their heart unto their own destruction. If you want to choose against God, God may confirm that decision, and use it in his own advantage. And so another Gibeonite situation wouldn't happen where somebody's trying to make peace with them. But again, these people did have the option of leaving. They could have all packed up and left. If they really believed that they were going to lose to God's people, they they would have packed up and left. And that's what they should have done. And God wouldn't have chased them outside of the borders of uh, the promised land. And in verse 23, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it to his inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Now, let me make a note here. He went in, split up the country, took on the southern kingdoms, took out the men of war. All that was left was a few scragglers in the various cities. Now what he is doing is he's dividing it up, amongst the twelve tribes of Israel and it was for them now to go and to destroy the cities and to kill everybody and to take the land as their own. Now what we're going to discover in the first couple of chapters of Judges is that the children of Israel didn't do it. They stopped short. They got a mount that they wanted. They got comfortable and they quit the fight and the enemy grew and became stronger and in the book of Judges the enemy conquered them. What they should have done is obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone in and taken out their whole section of land, but they didn't do it. And so that ends, in, in chapter 11, ends the chronological order. Now remember that this isn't a Western cultured written book. And so things will bounce around a little bit, but it was completely fine in the Eastern mind. And so chapter 11 stops the, ends the chronology, of Joshua. Now he's going to go back, and he says, oh, by the way, Moses conquered some kings in his time. In verse 2, Sion, the king of the Amorites. In verse 4, Og, the king of Bashan. And then they gave the portion of that land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassehites. And now you can look over there, and you can see straight down the paper on the left, the Hula Lake up there, the Sea of Galilee, and that's the Jordan River. That line going down is the Jordan River, and follow it down to the Dead Sea. Okay? Now, on the right is not the Promised Land. The left side of the Jordan River is the Promised Land all the way to the ocean. But notice where the Reubenites are. They're on the wrong side of the Dead Sea. They're on the side that is not in the Promised Land. And then you go on up and Gad and then the half-tribe of Manasseh, and you see that they're outside the area that God had designated as the promised land. And then Joshua, going back to chapter 12 there, he conquered, as we find in verse 24, 31 different kings. And uh, your memory verse next week is to memorize all of these kings and where they're from. Only kidding. All the Bible's the word of God, but not all the Bible's as equally as important. But notice chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. Boy, don't you just hate it when God says that? I mean, it's like the guy who uh, his friend said, Tell your girlfriend, give her a compliment. And he says, Well, you know, you don't sweat much for a big fat gal. And... uh not not really the kind of compliments you want but anyway anyway (laughs) uh, you're old you're an old guy you're an old geezer and uh, but notice he says there and there remains very much land yet to be possessed there remains very much land yet to be possessed so what is he saying to Joshua the people aren't doing what they're supposed this is the land yet remains all the territory of the Philistines and all of the Gershites So again, Joshua did conquer the promised land. The southern kingdoms were destroyed. The northern kingdoms were destroyed. The armies were taken out. All the kings were killed. All that was left were the cities, the few scraggler soldiers that got back to the cities, and the women and the children that were there in those cities. For these people to take the tribes and go back and to fight and to win in battle and to have completely ridded the people of any foreigners wouldn't have been a hard thing to do. But they didn't do it. A matter of fact, they actually possess less than 10% of the promised land. That's pretty sad. A matter of fact, the most the children of Israel ever possessed was 10%, and that was under King David and King Solomon. There was 300,000 square miles, and the most they ever attained to was 30,000 square miles. Well, he divided up the eastern of the Jordan. And again, he's going to go over that, the, the same thing that he just mentioned with the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassanites. And he covers that the rest of chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, these were the, now the area on the right side where the promised land is at. And he distributes and divides that up. And he begins to talk about how it's conquered. And immediately now Caleb jumps in. And notice in verse 6, Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kinzenite said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God concerning you, and me to Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me to Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. He was one of the 12 spies, as you remember. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Now, he came back with a good report. They're giants. It doesn't matter. God's with us. They're our bread and butter. Let's go eat them up, you know. He was a man of faith. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. Underline that. Put a big star. He wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land where your foot was trodden shall be your inheritance and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive as he said these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as I was on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war. Both were going out and coming in. I love this. This 85-year-old guy, man, just a studly dude. He looks just as strong as he did at 40 years old. And now, therefore, give me this mountain on which the Lord spoke to this day, this, that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and that I shall be able to drive out the, out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. And Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kinsanite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. The name of Hebron formerly was Kareth Arab, Arbub was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the Lord had rested from the war. I love this. Caleb comes and he says, J- Moses promised me wherever my foot was I could take any portion that I wanted. And when we came here, the biggest and the baddest dudes was the Anakim. The biggest fortified cities was Hebron. Now, if you remember back, Hebron was where Abraham fellowship with God when he first came into the promised land. It literally means communion. And he says, I want that place where Abraham communed with the Lord. I want that place back. I want to take on the biggest and the baddest and the tallest and the meanest. I want them. This man of faith, I love it. I hope we don't ever start feeling old and start saying, Oh, well, you know, I'm not young like I once was. Well, back when I was younger, I would do that, but not... No. That as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That we would see in the Lord and in his strength, it doesn't matter whether we're 20 or whether we're 120. God can give us strength physically, spiritually, emotionally. God can give us as much power. At whatever age. I was going to be on the radio with Chuck on Labor Day. That's why I had to leave early from our picnic. And we were going to meet at Marietta and at the campground there and be on the radio together there at Marietta. And I get there and Chuck's not there. Chuck's now 71 years old. And he stayed over in Costa, Mega, Costa Mesa. <laughs> I already there, Costa Mecca, at uh, the Logos building, and, uh, and I, I get before the radio, I said, Chuck, why aren't you over here at Marietta? And he goes, oh, you know, I decided just to stay here and work on my yard a little bit. And I said, you figured out it was Labor Day, and the guys weren't building on the buildings out here, and so you decided enough to come, didn't you? He goes, yep, that's right. Just a few weeks before, he was up on a roof, roofing on a two-story building. At 71 years old, a month before that, he was dropping the the tranny on one of the big trucks out there. 71 years old. I was. I've been hiking there at the uh, last summer. We were hiking up the mountains there. He's got a little bit of a limp in one leg uh, from an old football in- injury, but man, he's he was huffing it just like any young man. His camouflage outfit, and he got a camouflaged. Templeflood's jeep up there. He cruises around in, but I love it. God has given him strength, and what an example it is. He's as strong at 71. Uh, I guess as he was at 40. I didn't know him at 40. Uh, I was still in diapers. <laughs> no, only kidding, but not not too far off. Now, chapter 15 is the land divided up to Judah. And uh, Judah gets the first of the inheritance, partly because of Caleb, because he was of the tribe of Judah, and partly because of the prophecy out of Genesis that said that Judah would be the main tribe that would, would rule and reign. And so it says in Genesis 48 that the scepter would not leave judah until shiloh had come which is a term for the messiah so the portion of judah encompasses jerusalem because that would be a part of the lineage of the tribe of judah in which jesus was from chapter 16 was the tribe of manasseh and the other half tribe of or ephraim and the other half tribe of manasseh and in chapter 17 And interesting, in verse 12 and 13, a very sad statement. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew stronger that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Take a note, back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Turn there real quick if you would. Just a few pages to the left. Deuteronomy chapter 20, not very far to the left at all. Notice again the instruction of Moses. He knew they would hit this very time. And in chapter 20 verse 1 it says, Now when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see those horses and those chariots and the people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach, and, and he goes on. But he lets them know not to be faint-hearted, not to be afraid, and to be as stubborn as they are to drive them out. But what do the children of Manasseh say? They say, well, they're stubborn. We've got to let them stay there. But then when they got strong, they would put them under forced labor, but they still did not kill them and drive them out. As God had said, and we're going to find in the book of Judges, this indeed was their folly that brought them eventually destruction now notice these guys who didn't drive out the canaanites they complain about not having enough land and look at verse 14 then those children of josh of joseph spoke to joshua saying why have you given us but one lot and one portion to inheritance since we are a great people and as much as the lord has blessed us until now So they're complaining, saying, you didn't give us enough geographical space for the amount of people that we are. So Joshua answered them, and I think rather sharply, if, notice there, you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. So on the one hand... You got Caleb, this 85 year old man, going, Give me the biggest and the baddest giants. I'm going to take their land. And on the other hand, you have the Ephraimites and the Manassehites coming up whining, going, Why didn't you give us more property? And he's going, You've been given plenty of property. The reason you're not inhabiting it is because you didn't go wipe the enemy out. Well, they're too big, they're too bad. And he turns around and, and quotes Caleb to him, basically going, have the spirit of caleb and go in there and take that land and the children of joseph verse 16 said the mountain country is not enough for us and all the canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron both those who are of bethshan and its towns and those who are the valley of jezreel and joshua spoke to the house of joseph to ephraim and nasa saying you are a great people now he's encouraging them you are a great people and have a great power you shall not have one lot only but the mountain country shall be yours although it is wooded you shall cut it down and its farthest extent shall be yours for you shall drive out the canaanites though they have iron chariots and are strong so now he turns around and gives them an encouragement they didn't do it eventually king david did it for them but he turns around and he says well if you're a great people go for it talk like caleb why don't you have the attitude caleb had And then they're like going, but they have chariots. (laughs) And he goes, come on, man, You, you are a great people. You do have a great power. God is with you, man. Get up there. Go start chopping down those trees and use them for arrows and use them for big battering rams and go take those people out. Go destroy them. You can do it. But they don't do it. Now, again, what is this a type of? This is a type of you conquering your flesh and maybe there's an area of flesh in your life where you want to grow spiritually but you know you're not and the reason is is because of that area maybe it's drugs or drinking or area of covetousness or lust or an area that you're not disciplined in yet and maybe it's been years you've been fighting against this weakness and when you're strong they're in bondage you've got them somewhat under control. But they're not gone from your life, and you know it. And then when you lose your focus and you're weakened spiritually, all of a sudden now it's oppressing you again. What's the answer? You are a great people. You do have a great power. Paul says that you would know about the power of God that works in us mightily, he says in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Folks, there is a great power that works in us. God's Holy Spirit lives in you. And through the power of the Spirit, all that flesh life can be put to death. It can be crucified with all its passions and desires. Go before God. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. The Bible says be still upon your bed. Be angry and don't let sin be a part of your life. Take that area of your life that the Canaanites are living in. Look at those walled cities of that lust or that covetousness or that weakness in your life. Get angry and say, no way is that going to be a part of my life anymore. And get on your knees and cry out to God for deliverance and ask the Lord to give you that strength to uproot and to completely annihilate that area of your life of the flesh. Well, chapter 18, again, they are splitting up the land, and I've given you a piece of paper that splits up the land for you so you can clearly see it. In chapter 9, he goes on and he finishes up. Interesting there, he gave the tribe of Dan a portion of land, but I love this in verse 47. And the border of the children of Dan went beyond these because the children of Dan went up to fight against Lachishim and took it. And they struck it with the edge of the sword, took possession of it, dwelt in it. And they called uh, Lasham Dan, after the name of Dan their father. And this is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, these cities, with their villages. And today you can go to that area of Dan. I love this. The Danites not only possessed the land that God gave them, but they even extended the borders farther. And they went up to this one pagan area, and they destroyed them. And they said, this one's for pops. (laughs) This one's for dad. And they said, he wasn't able to make it, but we're going to make a city unto him. And they even expanded their borders beyond what uh, they were given. And I think the Lord loves that heart. Where Paul says, I press on. Let's end there tonight. Over in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we see this heart in Paul that uh, the Danites had. Philippians chapter 3, there in verse 12, he says, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to apprehend, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, well, God will reveal even this to you. Turn one more page to Colossians chapter 3. There in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death those Canaanites, those Amorites, those Perizzites and Hivites, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. But now you must also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. I love that. In the name of Christ, let's follow Christ. Let's beat our bodies into subjection as Paul said. Let's get up tomorrow morning like Caleb and say, you know, it doesn't matter how old I am, how young I am. I'm in the power of the Lord. Let's wake up in the morning and and let's say very clearly, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Like Isaiah 50 verse 7 says, I will not be disgraced, for I set my face as flint. I will not be put to shame, for the Lord is my help. Let's make our faces flint that we're going to seek the face of our God. Let's meditate in his word. Let's eat it up. Ten chapters of the Bible a day, you read the entire Bible in every three and a half months. I've heard so many good reports of people saying, I took that challenge. It's changing my life. For the first time, I'm reading passages of scripture I've never read before. I'm reading it in a speed where I'm catching so much that I didn't catch before. They're dedicating themselves to the word of God. 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at noon, 15 minutes when you get home in the evening, another 15 minutes at night, 10 chapters, no problem. Those Anakim, you can take them down. You'd read the entire Bible every about four times a year within the four seasons. Pray without ceasing. Set your mind on the things above. As D.L. Moody says, we've not yet seen what God can do through somebody's heart who's wholly surrendered to God. We've not seen a Caleb in our lifetime. The eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro throughout the earth this evening to find somebody whose heart is complete, completely surrendered, completely submitted, completely loyal to God, following Him the way He wants you to follow Him, to strengthen you, to build you up, and to make you a salt and a light in the earth. May God do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word tonight.